Okay, I'm ready to record my fantastic holiday intro. Can we like put in like sleigh bells in the background? <laughs> hey, Slava Connection listeners, happy holidays, season's greetings. We're excited to pop this extra holiday episode into your feed as our way of giving thanks for listening to the Slavic Connection this year. As we all know, the holiday season is all about love and peace, but when you really think about it, so are hippies. You've probably heard of the hippie movement, long hair, no shoes, love and peace, man. Now imagine all of that happening behind the Iron Curtain. We had Yuliana first on our episode. She is the head of the Communism and Society Department at the Leibniz Center for Contemporary History. And she's also the author and editor of several books and articles on Soviet youth culture, marginality. And her newest book came out this year called Flowers Through Concrete, Explorations in Soviet Hippie Land. So sit on down, get your hot chocolate, apple cider, bring your family around the tree, around the menorah, and uh, take a listen to our episode. Or- It's not uh, typical Texas. You're listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Right off the bat, I was hoping to talk about how you've gotten into this field, you know, what's pushed you to start looking into Soviet history and then more specifically into youth culture, alternative cultures. Where did you get your start? Yes. God, big, big questions. Um, have to dig quite far. I mean, I think there's sort of a factor of confluence what made me an Eastern European stroke, Russian stroke, Soviet historian. And some of it is very much located in the personal history of my family. I mean, I was born in Munich, but both sides of my family have roots in the far more eastern parts of Germany, including parts of Germany, which aren't anymore Germany, but which went to Poland or Russia after the Second World War. And then, of course, the sort of kind of date of of my my birthday kind of generation I am, I am that sort of last uh, Cold War generation coming of age really as as the the wall crumbled and eastern europe opened up and and suddenly you could go all of these places which seemed to be so mystifying behind the iron curtain and having grown up in munich of course the iron curtain wasn't anything that was very far away it was about only two hours and you knew that sort of prague was four hours drive except there was a big border in between and you never went to prague but you went to Paris or Venice or other places much further away. And, but on the other hand, you always knew there was a sort of whole side of Europe and it was on your doorstep. I guess when I was 16, when the sort of velvet revolutions happened in, um, in Eastern Europe, and I can't claim that I was completely conscious, but I, I, I remember, I mean, knowing that this whole new world was opening up there and that actually it was up to me to to make it my own. And um, so I started traveling east, first actually with my family, because my mother wanted to go back to Silesia, which is part of southern Poland and northern Czechoslovakia after after the war and, and used to be German or Habsburg territory before. And she was born there and we went there in 1990. And on the one hand, I felt completely alien and out of place, alone by the fact that I was so much bigger than all my 
peers. I mean, I remember we, we sort of visited friends and my mother had, and they had other teenagers, but uh, it literally, we Western teenagers were literally just, just bigger. And, um, and I remember for the first time really realizing that the sort of Iron Curtain is, is, is something much more than just a political border. And, but on the other hand, I found it fascinating and I, I knew this is where I wanted to go. So when I graduated from school, I started traveling again to Poland and to Czech Republic and Slovakia and and I, I wanted I basically went further and further east until I hit Russia and I kind of realized I arrived this is what I want to do this is the language I want to learn and um, and I think it was sort of a confluence of of the sort of being swept up in that moment of new beginnings new possibilities and incredible positivity I mean if I now look back I I I now see what an amazing moment it was because never again I think have people felt so hopeful that indeed things are going to really turn out for the better. And it, it, and, and it was just one good news after another chasing. All these countries became more and more independent. And I mean, there were a couple of sort of edgy moments like Ceausescu being shot, but in, in, in general, it, it was a sort of like, things are, are going to be right again after all these years of post-war trauma. And I mean, I, I would now see it more differentiated, but that was definitely how I experienced it as a, sort of late teenager, early 20s. And the, the other thing I think is a fascination with societies which are organized on a different principle than the individualist principle. So I think I've always been interested in other ways of living. And I guess sort of that's actually the conference. I mean, first, I think I would have been very interested in communism if I hadn't lived at the juncture of time where I lived growing up near the border, you, you did know that these this were nice regimes. State socialism wasn't nice. But on the other hand, I was I was fascinated by the whole attempt to create something which, which was different and possibly more just or more social, more collective. And then I've always liked working with people. Once I mastered the language, I, I knew I would never go back from actually speaking to people. And I already did this in my first project, a book on Stalin's generation, where I started interviewing what was then already very old people, and especially people involved in anti-Stalinist youth organizations. And I remember, I mean, I was very lucky. My first interview was this lady called Sasana Pechura, who was a young Jewish girl involved in an anti-Stalinist organization in the late 40s. And having drudged away in archives and libraries for eight months and then coming to her, and, and she gave me this incredible interview. And it was clear that Partly she had become an anti-Stalinist because she was enormously in love with Boy. She still loved, even though he got executed in as a as a result of this involvement in the in the anti-Stalinist youth organization. And, and and still 50 years, almost 50 years later, her feelings for her still shown through so much. And I've always therefore been interested in capturing the feelings and the subjectivities and the emotional subjectivities of people as much as the political developments. It always felt to me that this was a really important part of the story. So the confluence of all of that basically made me, made me end up where I am. And in retrospect, I can see that all my topics, they look like choices, but actually these topics found me and I just sort of wandered around and until the topic found me and then I, I knew it. Um, now I'm, I'm sort of kind of wondering what uh, what is going to be the third big project. Not quite sure I have found it yet, but I feel like I'm getting closer to the topic coming to me. <laughs> I find it fascinating that for so many people in a lot of these research areas, we have personal connections to what we're looking into. 
And because, you know, you were at an age where you experienced some of these events, like the, the Velvet Revolutions and such, but at 16, you can't quite understand it the way an adult does, I feel. So have you found that your research now has really informed your past in a way and kind of like helped you understand your own memories and experiences a bit? Yeah, I mean, fun enough in a much more personal way than than I think the political. I, I actually find it almost helpful to remember I find now the official discourse about um, this period, the late 80s and early 90s, it's it's so couched in these terms we didn't think of at the time at all, like neoliberalism or transformation. And I know there come a lot of political signs. And part of the problem is, of course, that at the moment, this area is very much still a political science area and historians are only starting to, to get their teeth into it. But I sort of, I, I sometimes force myself to remember back at that age of, of 16. And I, I guess being in Germany and having the wall fall down, even though I, I have to admit, as when the wall came down, I was an exchange student in Hanover, New Hampshire, so suitably far away from what was happening. But by being that German in that school, I suddenly became the, all these teachers wanted me to speak about Germany. So I suddenly had to become a super well-informed German. It, it was actually a very sort of, interesting process you were the German <laughs> and, I, and I am very grateful that I have that personal memory because I know that from the ground at the time this is not what it felt like it didn't feel like we are going to enter the neoliberal age etc and and I mean I think there's there's a lot of value in these interpretations and it's very interesting to know with the bird's eye and with hindsight to look at it but I, I'm actually, as a historian, I would be interested to to go back and recover it a little bit more of, of what it felt like at the time, not what we now see 30 years later, sort of Trump and populism and all of these things and turbo capitalism. That you could see it, but it, it that was not what what the experience at the time sort of felt like. So I think there's a there's a actually a lot to be done to to go back and listen a little bit of what people have to tell of what motivated them and go away a little bit again from the super globalized way of, of talking about this period, which is very, very top down. But if you ask me, how does it inform my past? I think the, the hippies in particular, researching hippies, I, I was always a bit like, is this an accident? Why do I research hippies? Because I, I did not have a particularly hippie-ish uh, youth. Um, on the contrary, I guess I, I I was told my mother, you're very lucky. I don't actually, you know, I'm not punkish. I'm not hippish. I, I, I don't pierce my nose, my ears, my whatever. But I can, interviewing all these hippies, I could suddenly see that actually in my own quiet way, I was quite anarchic and I possibly still am to a certain extent. And I guess that's what drew me to them. And even though in the outer symbols, I mean, I was not born in the in the hippie wave and a hippie generation. It was not the, the fashion at the time and I did not make it my fashion but I, I could see that there's also the the emphasis on on the emotional the emphasis on on love on generosity on tolerance I actually I, I realized these are things I've, I found attractive and and something to aspire to for a very long time so I, I sort of in the end I had to admit that possibly I was more happy than I I thought when I started out when I very much thought I'm I'm an outsider because especially most other people, I mean, a few other people who have looked into hippie history in, in the Soviet Union or in the sort of wider Eastern European world, they tend to come out of the movement. And I was felt like, OK, I was one of the few people who, who really didn't. I was very much a historian. But when I finished the book and I, I sort of wrote the introduction, I was like, yeah, actually, you know, there, there was more um, there was more in it than I, I, I first thought. 
also the sort of kind of sometimes stubbornness because the people I interview of course I don't only see them in their hippie face I see them like many years later and they don't stop telling me their story the moment they sort of leave the movement or become more mainstream again and but they, they and, and certain traits they continue to to have and they're all actually said you know something in you always stays a bit hippieish and it was that something that sort of slight desire to to have a, a personal space of freedom which I suddenly realized I can really connect to that and then I guess I became an academic because of it because I couldn't bear the thought of working in a hierarchy with a boss that, who controls what I do and so I think most academics actually have that piece of anarchy anyway. <laughs> so it helped you helped you find your inner hippie, your like slight inner anarchist as you uh, finish the book up. Yeah, possibly, possibly. <laughs> I mean, even though, of course, I think it was always there, but it made me realize that this is something I I could articulate, and it it, it felt it it felt true. And and I think you, of course. In a way, I mean, I know people do it. I mean, people do uh, study horrible crimes or criminals or genocides. And I have admiration because I think in the end, I always need to, to study something which at least on a general level, I, I feel I, I can have some sort of admiration or awe or respect for because it, it it infiltrates your your personal life and your being to an extent if you spend so much time over so many years with a topic. And I really, I really do wonder, like, how how do people who who really deal with the awful bits of history, how how do they survive that? Yeah, it, it becomes part of your life. It it becomes just as much of a, a partner as, as a or a pet or something like that. It's just constantly there, and you're constantly interacting with it. Yeah, and and, and in fact, it becomes the life of your partner and your, your pet <laughs> and your children as well, if they want to or not. But yeah, there's a reason people call some of their research projects their babies and and stuff like that. <laughs> So I do absolutely want to get into Flowers Through Concrete, but I actually wanted to kind of touch back a little bit on, you mentioned your first book, Stalin's Last Generation. And the book was, as you write, it's an examination of the relationship between late Stalinist ideological campaigns and the post-war youth. So what what did you find in, in your studies? How how did that book culminate and sort of what, what were your findings? In Stalin's Last Generation, well... It actually, it's, it's, it's had an interesting uh, genesis because it started out as a comparative study of the Hitler youth and, and the Komsomol. And my working assumption when I started was I wanted to show how a state managed to socialize youth in an extent as, as making them basically co-actors in whatever they did for better or for worse. And actually, I, I was I, I set out to write a history of more or less successful socialization because I came from German history, and I mean, it, it twelve years of, of membership in the in the Hitler Youth had literally dented a whole generation. So I came with that working assumption, and I, I went into the archives, and it's it's a difficult call because, of course, you read about successes, but you also you also read about all the failures. And I, I actually, what I learned very quickly looking at this sort of post-war history is that this was not a trajectory which went into greater coherence. This was a trajectory which went outwards um, into, into fragmentation. And I was sort of wondering what it what it really all means for, for Soviet history. And we tend to think of Soviet history in these big blocks of Lenin plus NEP, then Stalin, then the Khrushchev period, then stagnation and Brezhnev, then Perestroika, and then the end. And I thought actually the, the most decisive event that, that happened, and by now it's much more recognized as such as it was when I wrote that book, 
really is the great fatherland war because um, it was absolutely decisive in, in, in every respect. I mean, not only the enormous losses, which we now know were at least 27 million, but possibly, I mean, I've only lately checked again and their current research, which suggests 50 million, but the enormous destruction of infrastructure, of, of, of life, of, of housing, of, of everything, but also, of course, the, the sheer experience of, of occupation and going through that and rallying behind the cause. And I suddenly realized that actually this privatization we have does as if the war is just some integral part of, of Stalinism. But that is really not the case. The, the war really does change everything. And in the short run, the war gives the Soviet Union a sort of kind of second founding myth, a second lifeline. It, it, it really does rally people again to a cause which is very quickly equated with the Russian revolution. There isn't much distinction anymore made between rallying together to defend the Soviet motherland or actually having created it. And, and it becomes the sort of kind of double-headed myth of revolution and, and war. But um, it also leaves scars in the fabric, both ideologically and 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 just in terms of, of structure. And, and these scars, they start to, to fester. And they start to fester very quickly already in the, in the post-war period. And and actually, what you see is a, is a growing alienation, a growing fragmentation, and a, gro- a growing uh, attempt to carve out spaces that are somehow not ideologically controlled. And because the war has destroyed the sort of kind of control and also has destroyed the sort of continuous narrative. And I think there is also, of course, something about just generations. I mean, any country that has one ideological regime for a very long time, the first generation are the supporters and the carriers of this ideological regime. And the and the second generation might rebel against it, but they're, they're still very much infused to it. And the third generation, they really need a sort of kind of new founding myth because the whole founding myth isn't theirs. And this is what happened with the, the war. Basically, the war became the founding myth for the whole generation of veterans who were in power until Gorbachev. And then the people who were born afterwards, they were kind of left at loss because they had to buy into a myth that wasn't their own anymore. And so they started creating their their own spaces. And of course, I'm speaking in very big terms here. Of course, they were backwards and forwards. And if you look at individual people, you had believers up to the very end. But I would say the general trend of of this this alienation of, of youth from the regime and the regime failing to provide new heroes and new models that really is with the war. So I would say the causality of, of, of the thaw, the causality of reforms, actually, is it's not Stalin died and then you had reforms. Stalin died and the need for reforms, the, the, the pressure from below for reforms was so big that basically the thaw had to, to happen. So in, in, in a way, I mean, if I go away from all of that sort of minute detail of youth culture and protest culture, that is my big thesis in the first book, that the war changes everything and you can see it very well when you look at the generation that was socialized after the war. I find that viewpoint fascinating because you're completely right. When when people think of Russia, they think of the big, the big leaders, the big periods, but in a way you take that that lens and focus it more on on the below, on the people and the change that they themselves managed to instigate, which which is fascinating. And I think in the same way, you kind of examine that through flowers through concrete as well, in that you're looking at it from a, a very down on the kind of rungs of humanity, like just like the people layer of it. And it's it's fascinating because it, it makes your material so much more approachable because, you know, you can study leaders, you can study all these big regimes all you want, but it's not as relatable until you start actually looking at the perspective of peoples through oral histories and 
actually looking at their lives, because now that's something that people that may not understand that can connect with that. And, you know, every historian finds their niche. Um, and I think every every niche has its its justification. And I think you have to really write what you, you feel you want to write. But I think I realized in the first book, it wasn't so obvious because, you know, it was once a dissertation and I rewrote it, but it was still very much trying to adhere to what I thought was expected um, of me. And, and with the second book, I felt, of course, already a bit freer. And then I stumbled across this group of people who really were untouched by historians. I mean, even now when I think, you know, I mean, I don't know what the fate of this book will be. Will it become a, a, a big thing or will it become a small thing? You know, you never know. But I've, I've derived enormous pleasure from the fact that really I created a piece of history here of people who otherwise would be more or less forgotten and, and to write, to really add something to the historical knowledge. And of course, how important people will value that later on. I mean, there are people who say, why bother about hippies? They're sort of this marginal of the marginal communities. But I very much feel that one can only understand a society if you if you really listen to the plurality of voices and especially to the ones which are on the outer edges, because the edges let you sort of kind of gather the distance you can have between center and, and, and edge. If you never if you never try to see how far can somebody be from the mainstream of society, and then you never get a, a full picture of it. And yeah, it gave me enormous pleasure over the last 10 years, the sort of idea that I'm I'm preserving, I'm really preserving something in a sort of very basic way of, of a work of a historian. And as I say, I've always been interested in the in the story of the personal story and, and the emotional story behind, because we, we all know, I mean, we all live history the whole time. Everything we live now is will be history tomorrow. And there's the stuff that's in the newspaper, and then there's the stuff. What what makes what moves people really every day and and quite often it's the stuff which doesn't get recorded but it does have an impact it does have an impact I mean the way now in the pandemic the way how we feel about um, isolation the way how we feel about friends the way we feel about contact completely informs of how we relate to the larger political events and the larger political policies so. And I think we are at a point, I mean, there is a history of emotions branch out now and there's people who study effect, et cetera. We have come to the point where we realize that it isn't anymore all about people doing things or policies. It, 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 the in-between and the ephemeral and the, the emotional and the effective, it all matters. And it's hard history to write. I mean, I found... I thought the second book would be easier to write than the first one because, you know, the first one you have the dissertation and you have to rewrite it, et cetera, and you're new to all of it. But actually, I would say the second one was was definitely it, it. It came more from the inside, and it was um it was more of um a struggle insofar as I had to give more from me to in order to to understand in order to understand the people I write wrote about. I literally sometimes spent days sitting there and thinking about one person, piecing together the evidence I had about this person, and trying to imagine what what that person meant in the grand scheme of of things and. Sometimes I really thought that these people are closer to me than some of my friends or even my family because I'm spent so much time trying to get into their head. But it, it was a very satisfying experience. And I know I'd be, um, I'd be very happy I did this research regardless of, of where, where what will happen to it now and how it will be received. It's been a Well, let's get into the fruits of your labor and and talk about, you know, these hippies, because I'm definitely a guilty party in that I had no idea that the Soviet Union had a hippie movement. So could you explain, you know, what that was, really get into the the details of of what Soviet Soviet hippie land is? 
Yes, yeah, so I mean, I was in, in that position and actually it was that surprise moment because I was sent out in, in this project I was talking about before, the one which was run by Oxford around 1968. I was sent out to find protest cultures around 1968. And I dutifully, I started in, in, in Budapest um, in the OSA archives because, you know, it's always a good place to start. What, what the CIA knew is, is, is always something <laughs> worthy, worthy of knowing. And I was a bit frustrated because my colleagues, they were all working on Prague or Paris or Germany, and they had all these this riots and their leaders and this ideological discussions. And I had, at the moment, I had seven people demonstrating on Red Square, seven people and a baby, as somebody pointed out to me. And I had a handful of crazy refuseniks trying to hijack a plane in Leningrad. It somehow didn't quite add up. And it's like, oh God, what's happening? What's going on in the Soviet Union? And I came across this reference in the Chronicle of Current Events on this of this hippie demonstration in 1971. And I had the same reaction, like, wow, they were hippies. And initially I thought, oh, that's great. I'm sure they're like a handful of hippies. And if I can find that network, I can, I can make it a sort of case study. But I also I had no idea what that meant or that they were in any way organized. And it, it was and really was like. And unpeeling, I mean, this is what the first years were incredibly exciting because um, every interview revealed so much more and every interview then revealed another five contacts. And I very quickly had to say, okay, I'm not going to study that network because it's net massive. It's, it's several thousand people and I cannot interview everybody. And I also very quickly realized that these people had existed basically from 67 right up to the end of the Soviet Union. So by the time hippies have, were long lost and gone and morphed into other movements in, in the West, in the Soviet Union, um, they were still going strong. But so what was the Soviet hippie land? It was different things at different times. And I concentrated in the end in the 70s, partly because I came out of that project around 1968. So I, 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 that was my anchor of a year. But the Soviet hippies themselves, and I would agree, date their existence to 67. I mean, I'm sure there was somebody in 66 who was already sort of had heard of hippies. But it's really quite interesting. It starts independently in, in, in a variety of towns. And since I had access to the Ukrainian KGB archive, I just know just how in how many towns it, 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 it existed, because I suspect that the Russian case wouldn't have been much different. I mean, the Ukrainian archive mentions about 20, 30 Ukrainian cities, including relatively small ones, where you have this band of people who call themselves hippies and try to dress themselves like Western hippies. And the one thing they all have in common is usually a, a crazy love for the Beatles. And, and, and I wish to be, it was very much an imitation game in the, in the beginning. I wish to be like Western hippies and a sort of gateway of getting information. But some of that information actually came from officially printed Soviet sources. So it wasn't, it wasn't only a case of privilege, but quite often it was a case of privilege. Um, so in many places, this very early hippie crowds came from children of the nomenklatura um, in the party. And they came about in all sorts of places, independently, not really knowing of each other. But obviously, in places like Moscow, which just had a big population anyway, had a big population of privileged children, they became more numerous. And by numerous account, in the early 70s, there were about two, 3,000 people who would have identified as hippies in Moscow alone. I mean, Moscow probably was much bigger than anywhere else. Tallinn probably wasn't this far behind, partly because they the fear of, of repression and the, 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 the hurdle to, to become a hippie was lower in, in the Baltic states because the whole society was a bit more anti-Soviet. So it, it didn't 
it, it, it didn't seem to be such a big jump and Tallinn is, was sort of designated as this kind of vault for Western uh, Western uh, culture anyway. There's a very interesting anecdote. One hippie told me where he was on a train from Riga to Tallinn and he gets in a conversation with a um, drunk and getting drunker KGB agent who reveals himself as a KGB agent. And he says, and, and he's clearly a hippie. I mean, he has long hair and and the KGB agent says, yes, you go to Tallinn. We, we made that your reservoir. That's your that's that's your zoo. We made that your zoo. And meaning basically we, we designated, we, we, we gave up that city to you. And but that's where you can be, but nowhere else. Interestingly, he he gets arrested because of a conversation with somebody else in that train later on. So clearly the, the reservoir wasn't wasn't so secure. And in Moscow, I mean, it comes down in the end, it comes down to a couple of very determined individuals. Um, there's, there's a guy who basically realizes that in order to in order to make that that movement, which of course is fragile because it becomes clear quite soon that it isn't necessarily liked. There's a sort of period of um, uncertainty of what to do with these hippies because the press had been praising Western hippies, at least in a cautious way, for, for quite some time. And insofar as Western hippies were anti-materialist and they were against the Vietnam War and they took a stance against American politics. So all of that sounded quite positive. So there wasn't a real condemnation of hippies until 71, 72. Uh, but on the other hand, it was already clear it wasn't something which which was desired. And this guy, Yura Burakov, um, nicknamed Sonse in Moscow, he instinctively, I think, uh, grasped that uh, you needed to somehow systemify the movement in order to make it more sec secure. And he coins that word Systema for these hippie networks, which already is, is very interesting insofar as, of course, Systema was also the slang word for the big Soviet system. And I, I think a lot of Western hippies would have barked at the idea of a system. But of course, in a way, it was the right response to, to a, a hostile system to to counter it with another system. And being a good Soviet, he, he knew about the importance of visibility, of rituals, of collectivism. And he organizes this demonstration in 1971, which was my entrance really into, into the hippie world, and which is a big thing because about, some people say 2,000 people, but definitely several hundred people get arrested. And that is a moment of, of waking up, of realizing the regime is not tolerating Soviet hippies anymore, and that changes the, the the movement. They are less sort of it's less sort of like oh yeah, let's be a hippie for today, and it's it's now you have to make a decision. Either you become an upright Soviet citizen and you go through university and you make a career, or you become a hippie. You can't be both. And the people who now become hippies, while they're fewer, of course, they are more determined, and they're they're also buying in this idea of the systema. And from the mid seventies onwards, you have a second generation of of hippies, and they they build up the systema even more. They they start having the summer camps and connecting with all these countries and with all these towns all across the Soviet Union. And by the eighties, it's known there are thirteen places where. There are Systema, and when you come there, you know the place of where hippies meet, and you can go there, and they will take you in and give you a place to sleep, and and you have a certain ca um, calendar, like on the 1st of June, you meet here, and on the 1st of September, you meet there, and on the 1st of May is, is Tallinn, is the beginning of the season. And the, the oral sort of traveling of news, and therefore creating a knowledge community that works really well as well. So from about the late 70s onwards, you have this incredibly well-oiled subculture which is really an alternative culture because it's it's so much providing so many elements which are normally official culture would do community music collectivism summer camps 
even some kind of newspapers, even though the hippies were never very good in writing anything down. And yeah, and, and that, that is really, by, and by that stage, I would say the Soviet hippie land is, is something which is a really a Soviet entity, like Soviet in the sense, like it's located in the Soviet Union. It's its its own, in its own right, um, a civilization in its own right, um, rather than an imitation of, of some Western movement. <laughs> where, where are you from? You're dressed kind of strange. Oh, well, this is really very natural in the Haight-Ashbury up in San Francisco. <laughs> yeah, huh? The newspapers refer to it as flower land. Oh, yeah? yeah? That's kind of weird, you know, it's just cement. It's just like L.A. <laughs> <laughs> how did you make it, how did you happen to make it to the show? Generally, the people that from the, the flower movement and the, uh, the hippie movement, they generally don't come to TV shows. They have other Well, things. you know, somebody, I was just, I hitchhiked down yeah. here from San Francisco, and I was just sort of hanging out, you know, and somebody laid a ticket on me to come here. And, you know, anything that's free, you know, is a groove. <laughs> yeah. I'm fascinated in the idea that it, it did, you know, come from the West. And I, I think you mentioned in your first chapter that, yeah, people were reading official Soviet um, literature on this and that they were describing what was happening in the West, like, oh, there are these people that are kind of protesting against the government, look what's happening over there. And that sort of was the seed that was planted in the Soviet Union, but then it grew into its own, especially after there were these sort of waves, these changes, almost generations of of hippies. But I I guess I'm curious to ask, you know, when, when does a hippie become a hippie in the in, in this era, what was their leading ideology? What were they trying to get at? Because I'm sure it wasn't just, you know, having long hair. Well, I mean, long hair goes a long way in the Soviet Union because <laughs> it's something which is so forbidden. I mean, it's um, it's it's like, you know, wearing red and white in, in, in Belarus was nothing like two years ago. And now it's a huge political statement which gets you into prison. So it always has to be seen in the context. And of course, the hair, you also have the hair had to get longer. So people who called themselves hippies in the late 60s, they have hair which barely touches their shoulders. While by the mid 70s, you have people who have it quite, quite significant sort of manes. But of course, the question, I mean, when does a hippie become a hippie? And actually, who is a hippie is, is extremely difficult. And as a working assumption, I just basically took self-definition. I mean, I, I could after a while tell very much where somebody was on the on the spectrum, if somebody was a real hardcore hippie of the inner circle or a bit further away. But actually, for my purpose, it didn't make any difference because I was interested in all shades of people. And actually, I found some of them who tried to sort of straddle the boundaries the most interesting, and including, in fact, Yuri Sloskin, who, when I gave a paper in Berkeley, confessed that he was a 10% hippie. Uh, so I took an interview because 10% was enough for me. And, um, you know, I mean, he's somebody who was actually well connected to to a really sort of inner core group of this hippie system. But then clearly, I mean, he was allowed to, to study languages, become a translator and even travel abroad. So he clearly balanced it. And, and these, of course, are internet, very important and very interesting individuals, too, because they are the bridge between that sort of very marginal subculture and the, and the wider youthscape and the wider scape of, of, of Soviet society. So, of course, hippies spend a lot of time, like any group, debating about who is a hippie. And basically, when the book came out, there are several hippie Facebook groups, and one of them asked me if I could give them the manuscript they would like to run it through a translation machine. And after first hesitation, I, I thought, okay, I'll, I'll do it. And they ran it through DeepL, um, and they published every day. They published about four or five pages, and they had no no knowledge of English, so they completely blindly just ran it through this machine. And then they commented on it, and it, it, it was excruciating. It was half a year of torture of having your subject comments on your on your book. 
But it was also very interesting. And, and in a way, I, I sometimes think I should go back and, and write something about it because it was interesting to see what, what they comment on. And, and one of the biggest contestations was when I invoked people they did not recognize as, as, as hippies. And there was always this big discussion, are they one of our own? So there's this sort of the talk, who is one of ours, who is one of Svoy and who is not. Um, I, I, I think that's part of actually creating this, this, this group identity. The truth was, of course, the hippie community was incredibly diverse. And some people really did only have long hair and like music. Other people had huge ideological beliefs, um, which they fancied that everybody else shared, but it's never quite clear. I mean, there's this person called Jura Devasant, who incredibly fine, um, very fragile person, spent a lot of time in psychiatric hospitals, partly because he was in prison, but partly because I think he really did, was quite unstable. And, and he wrote this beautiful manifestos and he had people sign, but when you then go with his manifestos to the people who signed them, they couldn't really remember. I think a lot of people signed because he was their friend. And But it, it, it somehow all didn't really matter so much because they didn't need to be particularly cohesive. So what destroyed the American hippie when basically very quickly some of them became more radical and some became political and some became sort of ecological and some became feminist. That didn't matter in the Soviet case because you had always the Soviet system and they were all against the Soviet system. So that held them in place. And you could therefore live with these incredible contradictions even within the same friendship group because you didn't really have to make sense of it. You didn't have to think as somebody a nationalist or somebody a music lover or a Beatles or a, you had this group, the Motu Hippies and Lviv who really were bikers. They painted a, a peace sign on, on onto their motorcycle and, and therefore they were Motu Hippie. And, it, it actually, the, the, the repression allowed the, the community to be incredibly diverse without being incoherent. Um, but of course, the moment that lid was lifted already in Perestroika, the community falls apart. And that, that really is the end of the hippie movement. So did the Soviet hippie movement achieve any of the things that they wanted to achieve? Did they have any sort of check, we did that, check, we did that, there it is in history, we managed to get that done? No, no, they would have been horrified at this idea. I mean, I think some individuals had, including Yura Borakov, this guy Sonso, who I think he had a sort of, I mean, he was in many ways the most Soviet of all the hippies, having been the hippie leader. He had a sort of idea that he would somehow make hippies part of Soviet society and they would become a recognized part of Soviet society. And he wanted them to be useful and politically aware. But I think for most people, it was a kind of escapism. And as, as sort of after this failed demonstration, because of course the demonstration turns out to be a provocation and everybody gets arrested. There's very little appetite for, for political agitation. And also they have the dissidents. The dissidents do all of this political agitation and it comes to nowhere. And they're sort of, they're kind of, quite disdainful of, of the dissidents as such, because they say, well, they're, they're basically the same as Soviet people, just in reverse, or they're, they're the same as Soviet apparatchiki. So the, the, the goal really was the big escape. And I guess in that sense, they were very successful because they did create a world which allowed a surprising amount of escape. I mean, of course, one can always argue it the other way as well. And, and in a way, I do. I mean, I show all the bits of how closely they're still collect, connected to the Soviet system because, you know, I mean, housing, marriage, childbirth, having to work and not to be uh, labeled a parasite, all of this, of course, connects them to the system. 
On the other hand, if you look at their life, it is quite amazing. I mean, they have these flats which don't look anything like Soviet flats. They have these summer camps, they travel, they have these friends, they, they have their own rituals. And of course, everything kind of piggybacks on the big Soviet system. And sometimes I would say they're really almost parasitic because they exploit the economic weaknesses of the system. But still, I mean, they lived a life which didn't feel particularly Soviet. And I think most of them, like when the Soviet Union disappeared, which is now very soon, 30 years ago, it didn't change a great deal because their life structures and their life culture was already completely located outside the official structures, which, of course, was true by the late 1980s, not only for hippies, but for many people, and which is probably exactly of why, in the end, the Soviet Union could implode in that almost um, imperceptible way. And I think the hippies played a part of it because they showed already in the 70s how you could do it, how you could live a life which wasn't very connected to the official Soviet structures. So in that sense, of course, they were successful. In, in that sort of larger sense, like what was their belief of everybody will live in love and tolerance, they came there, hit the same borders as the Western hippies. First of all, they grew older, they had children, it wasn't clear of how, how do you become an aging hippies. Hippies function very well, they're always young, they live in this eternal garden of Peter Panship, and so they couldn't really deal with age. And, and of course, the, the reality intruded and the reality intruded really big time in the 90s, because then you couldn't just collect a few bottles and have enough money to live for a day. But you actually had to somehow survive this really brutal sort of trouble capitalism that descended on, this, on the ex-Soviet Union um, in that time. And people come out in, in different ways. I mean, it's, it's very interesting. I mean, the people I interviewed in the Baltics have a very different take than the people I interviewed in Moscow or, or St. Petersburg or um, other parts of, of Russia. And the people who emigrated, they have yet another different take. So uh, of course, they couldn't. In that sense, they, they, they couldn't do the great escape because life sort of had a habit of catching up with them. I mean, I'm, I'm curious because, yeah, you, you, you interviewed so many of these people now, so many years after the fact. What, what's become of some of so, the Soviet hippies? What are, what are they up to on those Soviet Facebook groups? What are they talking about? Well, I mean, the Facebook groups, of course, are only a small part. And in a way, I'm very glad I did all of this before these Facebook groups. I mean, I did most of the interviewing before the Facebook groups existed because it would have been so easy to just get stuck in these groups. There are plenty of people on there. But the early generation quite often isn't. And then there are people who just don't, don't identify with these groups anymore. So I interviewed actually a lot of people who I, I got a phone contact, which of course caused them as when, when the hippies were reading the book. It's like, who is this? And who is that person? And there was always a, a lot of discussion. But yeah, I mean, it's the, it's the full array of, of social success. I mean, on the, on the very sort of top level, I interviewed, not very successfully, I have to admit, Stas Namen, who was a hippie in the, in the late 60s, early 70s, and who, of course, is a big music entrepreneur. But, I mean, you know, he came out of the uh, Mikayan family. He's a, he's a grandson of Anastas Mikayan. So he hardly started out from, from the bottom. Supposedly, there are people working in Putin's administration. I interviewed a guy who may has a jewelry business in New York. Then I interviewed Piotr Mamonov, who, of course, was a celebrated singer, actor. 
Um, and then on the other end, they're the people, especially the ones who, who got into drugs, who basically lived one step up of uh, Bombshi, of, of uh, homeless people. I mean, they usually had a flat because this is what you, that, that's what the Soviet Union bequeathed you. But you're still very drug addicted alcoholics. Yeah, I mean, basically, um, mostly died since I interviewed them because their life was very precarious. Most people are somewhere in between. Most people are, do not have the great success stories. Hippies were not very well set up to, to capitalize on, on the new times. As I say, the ones who emigrated in the 70s, they usually uh, integrated well into wherever they emigrated, Israel or, or, or the States. The ones who emigrated in the 90s usually never arrived. Um, they were that sort of lost generation of emigres who live in a Russian community, but actually who in their mind live completely back in, in the Soviet homeland. I mean, you can see the states which have done better out of transformation, uh, the Baltic states. People are less torn, there's, there's less tension because their life is economically better and they don't see that sort of rift between their past and their present. Uh, Russian hippies see a big, they're, they're quite often quite anti-Western these days or at least very skeptical of the West that also goes in and up and downs. And they find it hard to, to reconcile this feeling they have now with the sort of worship of the West they had in their, in their youth. I have people who basically have also become outright white supremacist, racist, nationalist. A couple of people who are very active in the Navalny movement now, they've gone the other way. So I think the, the hippies, as I say, because they were so diverse, they, they, had, they had it all in them. The ideology gave the foundation to many different directions. You mentioned for one of the interviews that it wasn't as successful. So did you have some pushback? Some people didn't want to talk to you about this and some were more happy to talk to you about this? So Stas Namin, Stas Namin basically took great offense that I, I wanted to do an interview with him, uh, which I had done with everybody else. So I started with everybody else at their sort of grandparents because that was always a good way of like, how did they usually come to Moscow? Or um, it was a good way of, of getting Intro story, and I didn't quite. I mean, I, I, I sort of said, of course, I know who your your grandparents are, but I still wanted with him to also start somewhere further back, and and uh, he was very offended. And then I used the word privilege. I said, well, you grew up in a privileged family, and he absolutely blew up and said, I am my, my father was an um, air force officer, and we lived in barracks the whole time. There was no privilege about it. Which really is, is, is quite, quite a feat given, I mean, it wasn't only like his grandfather, his, the family of his mother was also high up in, in, in political circles. So, I mean, I'm sure they didn't always have an easy childhood. I actually think that a lot of these nomenclature children had quite harsh childhoods mentally. Um, but um, of course, to say that he lived like an ordinary Russian is, um, is rubbish. So he, in the end, we settled that he would play me the sitar. He also planted a kiss on my face. And then I, I, I said I would come back, but actually I then thought about it and I thought that it, it wasn't worth coming back, that basically everything he wanted to tell me I could get from his Wikipedia page, which he artlessly corrected, and that he had gone through too, too many cycles of, of whitewashing or of streamlining his memory as, as to give any sense that I would suddenly get something out of him, which was surprising. He also was intensely jealous that, of course, he wasn't at the center of the hippie movement. 
Piotr Mamonov had a similar reaction. So um, his wife, who was lovely, she invited me to a concert and and basically brought him to his ward and me to his wardrobe after the concert. And the 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 sort of room was full of sycophants who were all telling him how wonderful he was. And I guess I must have smirked a little bit, but uh, because he said. So who are you and why are you smirking? And and I was like, well, I'm a historian, I'm writing about this and I want to interview you. And he's like, well, if you want me to be the hero of your book, you have to give me everything you have written so far so I can proofread it. And, and by the stage, you know how academics work, I'd written nothing. And I was like, well, um, I can't do this. And, and that's in English. And we also reparted and I said, yes, I would send him stuff, which uh, as soon as I write something and then we would reconvene. But I also actually left and I thought, you know, um, it would have been fun to hear what Piotr Mamonov had to hear. He was actually more central to, to the movement than, than Stas Namen had been. But on the other hand, if somebody already starts by telling out if you want me to be the hero of your book, he has a so completely wrong idea of, of how I work. I don't want him to be the hero of the book. I want him to have the place and the book he had in the hippie movement. He's a source for me, like many others. And I then also decided that I wasn't going to pursue him. And of course, he died of COVID. So that's definitely it. He has, he has written, he has given a few interviews where he mentions a few hippie stories. But large large egos actually really are the, the curse of every interview. So these, these, the, these are the ones which are the least successful ones. And of course, on the other side, I mean, it wasn't, I mean, I had people who, who got themselves stupendously drunk during the interview and started fighting and throwing things around. And there's sort of always the point where you think, okay, when, when do I go? And I also sometimes just left. And of course, you always think, ah, if I had stayed a little bit longer, maybe they would have told me something. But that is, that is of course, the, the other spectrum, the other side. But these interviews were actually few and far in between. There were also a few, about two people who refused to speak to me because they thought I'm an FSB agent and you have to, to accept that. But the last, the vast majority, I mean, really the vast, vast majority of people, um, I got wonderful interviews and it was always actually, it was a very tiring process. But I think in my research life, my happiest period was the period I, I went out and collected these interviews because... It was really like living a life, one life per afternoon. Um, I, I soon realized I could only do one interview a day. Like after one interview, I was done. That, that I, My brain wouldn't work. And it was always this temptation if you're not all the time in Russia to try to squeeze two interviews in a day. And I, I learned that this was really a bad idea. I mean, the joy of your research process is definitely coming through both in your stories and in your writing. That you, It was quite a, a wonderful experience for you to be writing this book. And I, I'm very much enjoying all of these stories, like kind of, kind of the behind the scenes. I wanted to ask if there was any other interesting kind of anecdotes or anything that surprised you while you were working on this. Oh God, there were there were many. I actually for 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 a while I thought I want to write a book where like where actually I write about me researching these hippies and traveling through Russia because it was an interesting time. I mean, I I started in 2008 and I basically did interviews almost right up to to handing in the in the manuscript. The vast majority I did sort of in that period, 2008 to 2012. And then it just, it brought me places I would never go to. So for example, the main hippie in, in, in St. Petersburg or Leningrad, he um, he he had an interesting fate. He he became an alcoholic as many, many did, even though when he was a hippie, he was very much into clean living and yoga. And, and he also was one of these who actually in a funny way, he could have become a comfortable organizer or he could have become a hippie. And it was only the love for rock music that really pushed him over into the hippie camp. Otherwise, he, he, was, an, he was an extraordinary um, organizer. And he also very early on realized that there is something uh, historical in his story. And he started collecting documents and photos 
photos and even of other people. So he had a real archive. So I was very keen to see him. The problem was he had, um, basically he was an invalid. He had fallen asleep in the snow uh, one time drunk and had, as happens in Russia, and had lost an arm because basically he ended up in hospital and the the, the freezing developed gangrene and the arm had to be amputated so he couldn't work anymore. I don't know if he ever much worked in his life, to be honest, but he, uh, but he then got an invalid pension and that, of course, wasn't very much. And he had a room in a Kommunalka on Ulitsa Rubinsteiner, which he gave to his son. And he moved to this village called Valoshova in the um, Leningradskaya Oblast, about four hours away from, from um, Leningrad. So I obviously I wanted to see his archive, so I had to go to him. And I... I hired this Tajik taxi driver who I had met in, in, in Leningrad, you know, as you do. And I said, well, let's go to this village. And he's like, he agreed. So we, we drove uh, like early morning, six o'clock. We, we met and we drove. And and then it started pouring. The rain started pouring down. And we, we were already outside the sort of nearest little town and uh, in the real countryside, like nothing. Just a really potholed road. And of course, you go a pothole and um, something breaks and the car wouldn't move. And so I'm there, like, oh, my God, I have to go and see this hippie. And there's no car coming. Um, and so I stand on this road and, and try to flag down another car to go to Voloshova, which wasn't as far from there anymore. And a milk truck stops and he says, no, I'm not allowed to take anything but milk. I can't take you. Um, and just at that moment, um, a, a big Jeep comes and both me and the milk truck driver sort of flag him down. And this Jeep stops and it's like this four really burly men in there. And it's like, um, and it's like can you take me to Voloshova? And they're like, yeah, we're going to Voloshova anyway. So they take me into this, this car, which like just flies over these potholes, like completely different experience from my taxi driver. And they're like, what are you doing? I lost him. It's like, yeah, well, hippie or whatever. And they're like, why are you interviewing a hippie? Are you crazy? And it's like, what, what are you doing, Voloshova? And they're like, well, we're inspecting. And it turns out it was the governor of Leningradskaya Oblast who was on an, I don't know, some sort of visit. But anyways, I arrive in this village and the whole village is turned out to, to greet this governor. And I basically step out of the car. It's like, oh my God, what's going on here? <laughs> Hello. <laughs> But I, I end up with, 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 with Gina and then we, we talk all day. And at some point, my Tatik taxi driver who has repaired his car, knocks on the door and says, he's here and he will drive me home. And I, I, I was very touched that he didn't abandon me in this village because I was like wondering, I mean, how do I ever get out of that village? And and it was an interesting moment. And because my, my hippie tells me, you, ca- you can't go with him. He's, he's Tajik. He's, a, he's like Central Asian, you know, on Chorni. And he will rape you. And it's like, no, I don't think so. I mean, he had ample opportunity if he wanted to on the way up here. And it was a real interesting clash of like, on the one hand, he was this, this non-conformist person who um, who really had done an enormous amount to, to create this, this hippie movement. And he has written a beautiful memoir. I mean, really insightful, thoughtful. And at the same time, he, he was a big anti-Semite. He was a big racist. He was a big nationalist. And yeah, and in the, in the evening, I, I, I went back with my Tajik taxi driver and he deposited with me safely in... in in St. Petersburg, and I thought, wow, I, I mean, and, you know, that 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 day sort of really stayed with me because I had traveled the whole breadth of, uh, of Russian society from the migrant to the governor to the hippie stroke uh, nationalist. Um, and I'd been in this sort of kind of village, you know, one of these villages which used to have a big cow. I think it was dairy or it was, it was uh, meat, but it was basically it was full of cows and now it wasn't anymore. And they were trying to, to revitalize it. And it, it sort of 
it really felt like I had learned an enormous amount, not only about hippies, but actually about like where was Russia in, in that 25 years after the end of the Soviet Union. And the one really uh, last juicy detail of that story is that Gena um, Zaitsev grew up literally door to door with Vladimir Putin. They lived in the same house, were the same generation in, in Leningrad, but clearly did not have the same career path. <laughs> That's a fantastic story. I, part of, parts of that sound like the start to a, a very good anecdote, like an academic stands in the middle of the Russian countryside hitchhiking and asks, can you take me to Voloshova? I need to meet a hippie. Yes, I know what I mean. <laughs> Live long and prosper. I'm gone and solid. Yuliana, thank you so much for this conversation. I know you mentioned that, you know, you're still waiting for that next research topic to come and find you, but is there anything that we can look out for in the meantime, anything that's going to be published? Uh, no, no, there's definitely nothing published. I mean, I've been sort of kind of uh, stopped in my tracks since the book because COVID came and then actually I was very lucky. NLO snapped up the translation uh, or is going to translate the book. So I've been very busy working with my translator. But I sort of kind of know where I want to go. Um, and it's it's actually, it's perestroika and it's perestroika in the Far East. So I, I really actually want to force myself away from Moscow and Leningrad, which uh, even though I that was already the idea in the hippie project to not do the capitals, um, I, I still ended up doing a lot of capital. But I would like to, to do something on Birobijan, possibly Komsomolstna Amur. And I sort of see, I'm, I've, I've applied for, for a fellowship in actually Japan. Um, and if, if I get that, I feel like, okay, I've made that jump. It's uh, these, all these places are much closer to Japan than they actually are to Germany. So um, I think that might be the, um, the the hint uh, that's, 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 that's what, what's waiting for me. <laughs> that's wonderful. Well, I mean, if you're trying to get to the Far East, I heard there's a great Tajik taxi driver that can take you there, so. <laughs> <laughs> but Japan, though, it, I lived in Japan for two years. Oh, really? Where were you? I studied abroad in Nagoya, yeah. kind of like the middle of Japan, and then I was on the Japan Exchange and Teaching Program, basically teaching English in a pretty kind of countryside area of um bottom of Japan and Saga prefecture is kind of like right between Nagasaki and Fukuoka. Wow, wow. Yeah, no, I mean, I must say I've only been once to Japan and that was for that um, ICES Congress um, a few years ago. Oh. It's, it's funny, the, mm-hmm. uh, I I've once were supposed to give a paper in Sapporo at the Hokkaido Research Center for Russian Studies. In the end, I canceled because um, I had so much on that year and, you know, it's a big way and it was winter and it's like the idea of, of traipsing in sort of meters of snow in, in, in Japan. Um, in Hokkaido? <laughs> No. <laughs> well, not appealing, but this, this, since then I'm on their mailing list and every year they write out this, this this yearly research fellowship. And you don't have to be there for a year, you only have to actually be there for, for certain days. But I thought maybe maybe that is the, um, you know, you always wait for that moment which pulls you into one direction to to do something. I thought maybe maybe it's time to, to return my eyes to, to Japan with a view of, of actually having my eyes on the Far East. That would be very exciting if you got to go. I'm excited for you. Japan is a wonderful place to live, even for a short period of time. Well, this has been a phenomenal conversation. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much. Bye. The Slavic Connection is part of the Texas Podcast Network, the conversations changing the world. Brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this program represent the views of the hosts and the guests and not of the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, please visit us online at slavxradio.com. Thank you.